I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Good afternoon, fellow scientists. I'm Dr. Malcolm Ismith. Eleven months ago, I made contact with a tribe in Borneo that heretofore had gone undetected by the modern world. They've been isolated for thousands of years, totally unsullied by modern culture. I've now earned their trust and even talked one of them into making the journey back to America. His name is Stephen. Stephen. Uh, Say hello, Stephen. Hey. Now... Stephen has agreed to answer some of your questions. Wait, he speaks English. Uh, Stephen, can you understand what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, sure. When did you learn English? Well, we don't call it English. It's uh, it's just our language. I've spoken it all my life. How how is it that we share the same language? Uh, I can answer that one. From what I can determine, Stephen's village began developing a parallel form of English simultaneously with the 5th century British. It's pretty extraordinary. Fascinating. Uh, So, Stephen, um, what do you think of America? I'm having a good time. Ikea kind of blew my mind. I got this uh, Fluffenwagen from the Scratch and Dent Room. Oh, interesting. What's the typical diet in your village? Well, lately I've been eating at this little hut where they serve these long pieces of bread and inside are a variety of cold cuts and cheeses and... Uh, we call them meat canoes. Oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. Amazing. Oh, oh, uh, Stephen, in a few of the photos Dr. Ismus has published, you're covered head to toe in what appears to be red war paint. Oh, yeah. I was probably going to watch the ball game. Uh, we've got a game where we kick a spherical black and white ball inside an enclosed space we call the Oval of Athleticism. Hmm. Uh, I support the Mount Kinabalu Redbacks, hence the red paint. Uh, uh, Stephen, what is that in your hand? It looks like a phone of some sort. Well, it's, a, it's a device for communicating with people for, uh, from long distances. It also has apps. Oh, I uh, assumed our, you had no technology. No, uh, our, our, our tribe calls it the distractor. Oh. And we've got stuff. I mean, uh, this actually happens to be a totally organic, super solar-powered device. Uh, its battery lasts for about a week on a single charge. Well, how, how's the sound quality? And do you experience any dropped calls? What's a dropped call? (gasps) 
Well, I think we've troubled Stephen enough for today. Um, I'll make Stephen available for more questions later in the week. For now, I'm taking him to see Titanic 3D. Goodbye. Stephen, just one last question. What's the one thing you'd bring back to your village? Oh, that's easy. It's something I heard the other day. It's... It's... The show that's calling you on your distractor right now. Tonight, Jane Jones from Book It Theater, stand-up comic and author Moshe Kasher, and music from the Shook Twins. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took Tolstoy to find the pencil he absentmindedly shoved in his beard, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thank you, Ralph. Uh, before we start the show, I just wanted to welcome another station to our happy family, WCPN in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome. I actually, I spent a few years of my misspent youth in Shaker Heights at Lomond Elementary. Boy, did we tear that place up. But you know what they say, what happens at Lomond Stays at Lomond, and also please don't forget to get your permission slip signed. In any case, it's wonderful to have you, and thank you for joining us tonight, WCPN. Uh, So later we'll be talking to the hilarious Moshe Kasher about the memoir of his childhood called Kasher in the Rye, and we'll also be talking to Jane Jones. She is the founder of Book It Theater, and they're a repertory company in Seattle that has produced over 200 pieces of literature. Uh, on the stage in their 22 years of existence. And I thought because we were having people from the theater on the show, it might be a good time to reveal my dark theatrical history. My um, ill-advised theater career began in fourth grade when I played a wise-cracking rabbit in an afternoon production of The Wise-Cracking Rabbit and some other characters I don't remember at all. Honestly, I don't remember a thing about the play or who else was in it or anything that I said. All I remember is it was the first time I ever acted in front of an audience and it was the first time I ever got laughs. And when that first rush of nine-year-old giggles came at me, it was revelatory. It was like this powerful cleansing wave was hitting me and it just washed away the time I threw up a bologna and cheese sandwich in the middle of science class or, you know, the last time I closed my eyes and took cover when a volleyball came at me, which is not in any way an effective volleyball technique. <laughs> FYI. Or, or just the last time I felt small, which when you're actually small is all the time. So I immediately became addicted to this utterly impermanent but completely effective smallness cleanser, so much so that I started ad-libbing. I was trying to ratchet up the laughs, and it was working for a while, but uh, part of my role as the wisecracking rabbit entailed me gnawing on a raw carrot, 
And inevitably, during one of my rants, I inhaled enough chewed carrot chunks to send me into this horrible coughing fit. And it turns out that a rabbit hacking carrot bits into a crowd is much funnier to a pack of nine-year-olds than any of my previous bits had been. I was, I was like Gallagher, but grosser. So my first triumphant comedic performance had turned into yet another smallifying moment that would need cleansing later. But that didn't stop me from wanting more. My future triumphs included a performance of Stopping by the Woods on a snowy evening in sixth grade that critics called brilliant. The role of the judgmental mother in in Butterflies Are Free in 10th grade that critics deemed riveting. And a controversial turn as Leroy's black girlfriend in a stage version of Fame. Uh, that critics described as confusing, yet luminous. Uh, Side note to our listeners, I am not black. Uh, Additional side note, the critics in all of those cases that I mentioned uh, was my mother. And let's be honest here, I'm still not cured of my addiction to the magical, desmollifying cleanser that is laughter. In just these last couple minutes, your laughter alone has already cleansed me of the time last month when my skirt blew up on Mississippi Street, and much like Marilyn Monroe in The Seven Year Itch, I screamed an expletive, tripped, and dropped my lunch. (laughs) And that is why I'm America's sweetheart. But as I mentioned, the effect is only temporary, and for most of us, humiliating humiliating incidents tend to pile up like life's little utility bills. So I wouldn't recommend seeking laughter as a panacea, or you'll end up like Carrot Top. And while carrots seem very healthy, Carrot Top is not good for anybody. Thanks. So... Our musical guest tonight uh, is just like the Thompson Twins, except they're not an 80s new wave band. They're not men, and they're actually identical twins, so actually they are nothing like the Thompson Twins. The Shook Twins are surprisingly a quartet made up of sisters Lori and Caitlin, who blend their angelic folk harmonies, banjo and guitar playing, with stand-up bass player Kyle Volkman and fiddle player Anna Tivill. They've been touring the West Coast since 2008, and they've shared the stage with folks like Ryan Adams, Laura Veers, and the Bodines. Their latest CD is Window. Please welcome the Shook Twins to Livewire.
Cardinals haven't been good since Kurt Warner retired. Maybe Arizona is just too hot for football. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> hey, you two hotties. I'm your waiter, Jordan. Have you decided on dinner? I think we'll just get drinks. <laughs> uh, bop I will have the uh, pineapple peach headbanging massive margarita. Rocks sans salt. Verbal high five on that choice. <laughs> you know what? Let's just get a whole picture of those pineapple peach suckers. <laughs> huh. What, no uh, verbal high five? <laughs> First date. Second. Huh. What? <laughs> oh, nothing. Uh, just that you seem to have a special glimmer in your eye. Okay, look on my face. And you, Bobby, have the fine layer of dewy forehead sweat that is common to the human male when it's preparing to initiate an inaugural copulation. I feel like things have taken an uncomfortable turn here, Jordan. Uh, All right, check it, Bobby. Uh, The state of Arizona has recently given me and all purveyors of alcohol the right to refuse service of alcoholic beverages to the egg-bearing portion of the population should she be within two weeks of plausible fertilization. Eggs. Excuse me? Uh, Why don't you just bring us our pitcher of pineapple peach headbang and massive margaritas... And we'll forget this conversation and the fact that I never vote and may be complicit in why this is happening. I'm sorry, but we only offer eggnog to potentially pregnant people. Uh, egg- 
eggnog. Gross. What, what if I promise not to sleep with him? Whoa, 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 what are you what are you doing here, bro? Hey, come on. Just this one time, Jordan. Jordy. Jordan. Well, our motto is, is well, let me see if I can read this button upside down. Our night's not made until yours is. Oh, that's a nice motto. Okay, well, and the pineapple peach headbang and massive margarita is pretty awesome, and I'd, I'd hate for you to miss out on it. Ooh, let me check something. I'll be right back. Don't worry, Pammy. My aunt lives in Canada. We can always have margaritas in Montreal, okay? Hey, hotties, I'm back, and it's your lucky night. The bartender has an opening in, like, five minutes. An opening for what? Tubal ligation. Duh. Uh, I can't believe I didn't think of it earlier. It's our Tuesday night twofer. An order of screaming hot jalapeno harachis comes free with every tie-off. Oh, but let me get this straight. You want me to have major surgery in the bar of a B-level national Tex-Mex chain while my boyfriend eats deep-fried Mexican jalapeno shoes? B-plus chain, and I'm telling you, this cocktail is totally worth it. I don't know, Pammy. Oh, going to Canada is such a hassle. And those margaritas do sound really good. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Oh, I'll do it. Oh, shoot. No, a new ruling just came down. All women are considered pregnant from birth on. Ah! Come on. Just bring me the eggnog. Tell you what, the Harachis are still on me. That was Andrew Harris, Sean McGrath... Trisha Ferguson and David Ian. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that still feels guilty for not finishing Infinite Jest. Coming up, Jane Jones from Book It Theater, comic Moshe Kasher, and more from the Shook Twins. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Well played, gentlemen. Since 1990, Book It Theater has been adapting great literature into theatrical productions. In their first three seasons, they performed over 100 short stories, and since then, they've produced over 100 plays based on full-length novels and collections, like John Irving's Cider House Rules, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and Raymond Carver's What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Their educational wing, Book It All Over, brings literary adaptations to schools and libraries and community centers as part of their evil plan to get children everywhere to read. (laughs) 
Tonight they'll be performing an excerpt of the first ever adaptation at Book It, Long Walk to Forever by Kurt Vonnegut. But first, we'll be talking to their co-founder and co-artistic director. Please welcome Jane Jones to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you. It's great to be here. You guys have actually, your style, you've trademarked it, and there are repertory companies around the country who are trying to to work with your same style. So what do you do that's different? How do you do it differently? One of the things through the Simple and Sensitive mission is to take the author's narrative voice and celebrate the narrative voice um, so that we ask our audiences to use their imaginations during a book at production And we take the narrative and we turn it into dialogue. She looked at Courtney, hoping she would understand. (laughs) So we use a lot of the narrative in many, many different ways. And one of the things, then we continue to ground the, we ground the production, we ground the works, and they're fully produced. They have lights, costumes, they're memorized. So you do have, because you're doing these stories that that some people would never consider trying to stage, you have to come up with some innovations. Oh, absolutely. All the time. I mean, Moby Dick was one of the greatest ones that we... When David Quicksall brought us Moby Dick, I couldn't even read it. I mean, I kept throwing it across the room. I was like... (laughs) How can we possibly stage this if I can't even read it? <laughs> you know. By the way, I was not a reader for a lot of my life. I was um, on. I didn't know I had dyslexia until I was about 30 years old, and so that changed my life. And at the same time, once I became a reader, I said there are all these marvelous stories, and we should put them on stage to encourage people to read. What, what actually makes a good adaptation? What do you look for in a book that, in order to bring it to the stage? You, want, you don't want allegory, I can tell you that. We tried to do Cannery Row, and it did not work. We then did Sweet Thursday, which worked beautifully. There's a Jack London short story called To Build a Fire that doesn't have a single piece of dialogue in it. It's all from the dog's point of view about how this man is going to really screw up and kill them that night. And it is my goal someday to be able to put that on stage without a line of dialogue in it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) so you're actually going to, tonight, uh, you're actually going to perform an excerpt from your very first adaptation for us. And so can you tell us what our audience is about to hear? Well, this is is one of the forms of the book at style, where we take, um, this is just a couple of paragraphs from Kurt Vonnegut's short story, Long Walk to Forever. Um, But one of the things I also have to just give a plug to Kevin McEwen, who just joined me here on stage, and he adapted Anna Karenina, which is playing right now at Portland Center Stage. And you know, that's an 800-page book, and he got it down, he and Chris Coleman, to like two hours and 45 minutes. I mean, it's marvelous. Go see it. It's marvelous. I never read it. He never read it. <laughs> I read it to him. Okay. So, okay. So, so this, is the, this is a way that we do, we work with the narrative. Long walk to forever. They They had had grown grown up up next door door to to each each other, other. on the fringe of a city 
near fields and woods and orchards, within sight of a lovely bell tower that belonged to a school, school for, for the, the blind. blind. Now they were older, had not seen each other for nearly um, a, a year. year. A year, a year. There had always been a playful, comfortable warmth between them, but never any talk of love. His name was Newt. Her name was Catherine. In the early afternoon, Newt knocked on Catherine's front door. Catherine came to the door. She was carrying a fat, glossy magazine she was reading. The magazine was devoted entirely to brides. Newt! She was surprised to see him. Could you come for a walk? Newt was a shy person. He covered his shyness by speaking absently, as though what really concerned him were far away, as though he were a secret agent pausing briefly on a mission between beautiful, distant, and sinister points. This manner of speaking had always been Newt's style, even in matters that concerned him desperately. A walk? One foot in front of the other. Through Through leaves, over bridges. bridges. I had no idea you were in town. Just this minute got in. Still in the army, I see. Seven more months to go. He was a private, first class, in the artillery. His uniform was rumpled. His shoes were dusty. He needed a shave. He held out his hand for the magazine. Let's see the pretty book. I'm getting married, Newt. I know. Let's go for a walk. Well, I'm awfully busy, Newt. The wedding is only a week away. If we go for a walk, it will make you rosy. It'll make you a rosy bride. He turned the pages of the magazine. A rosy bride, like her. Like her, he said. Catherine turned rosy, thinking about rosy brides. That'll be my present to Henry Stuart Chasens. By taking you for a walk, I'll be giving him a rosy bride. You know his name? Mother wrote. Ah. From Pittsburgh. Yeah. You'd like him, Newt. Oh, maybe. Oh, can can you come to the wedding, Newt? Mm, That I doubt. Ah, your furlough isn't long enough? Furlough? He was studying a two-page ad for flat silver. I'm not on furlough. Oh? I'm what they call A-W-O-L. Oh, Newt, you're not. Sure I am. Why? I had to find out what your silver pattern was. He read names of silver patterns from the magazine. Albemarle, Heather, uh, Legend, Rambler Rose. I plan to give you and your husband a spoon. Newt, Newt, tell me really. I want to go for a walk. Newt! You're fooling me about being AWOL. Ooh, ooh, where? Ooh. Where from? Fort Bragg. North Carolina? That's right, near Fayetteville, where Scarlett O'Hara went to school. How did you get here? Hitchhiked. Two days. Does your mother know? I didn't come to see my mother. Well, then who did you come to see? You. Why me? Because I love you. <laughs> now, can we take a walk? One foot in front of the other... Through leaves, over Over bridges. bridges. Jane Jones and Kevin McEwen from Book It Theater.
podcast is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, feeding your brain with crunch this. Ow. This week featuring the delicious, sweet, tropical mango, which you should never attempt to bite into with the skin still on. Welcome, Mango. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I can't say happy, really. I'm pleased that you chose me. Why aren't you happy? Well, I love the Northwest, but I'm a tropical fruit. We come from places like India, Thailand, Mexico. I gave up a week on the beach in Mazatlan to be here. Mango margaritas to die for. In fact, some of my friends did die for them. Oh, well, I love your skin. Would you, would you call that coral? Oh, it's more of a red, but I have cousins that are just straight up green or yellow. We don't discriminate. My mother always said, you are all equally juicy and delicious. Oh, I promised myself I wouldn't cry. You know, that's so sweet. Now, I was thinking of cutting you up and putting you over vanilla ice cream. And okay, I was... let me stop you right there. Great idea, but let me just throw you a curveball. Quinoa, red onion, jalapeno, lime juice, cubed mango, not me necessarily. French cilantro, quite the savory side dish. Excellent. You know what? I'm just going to go get my knife. All and right. then I'll... Let me just freshen up and I'll be right with you. Yeah, she's not coming back. This moment with a mango was brought to you by Whole Foods Market, who invite you to feed your brain. Learn more about healthy eating and get delicious recipes at WholeFoodsMarket.com. For over 20 years at Book It Theater, they've covered it all. The classics like Jane Austen's Emma, newer novels like Jim Lynch's Border Songs, and even turned a Berkeley breathed graphic novel into a Christmas play. But next season, Book It is going places you never thought they'd go. First in September, the classic everyone knows and loves. Finally, a theatrical adaptation of Home Accounting for Dummies. Rick! Tell me you love me. Damn it, Cheryl, you know I do. Prove it. You want proof, Cheryl? I figure out a way to list your Pomeranian as a dependent. To write off your apple teenies with your deadbeat sister as a charitable donation. And claim your failed paint-your-own-pottery-patisserie under force majeure. Oh, you do love me. And in November... It's the electrifying adaptation of Wiring Simplified, based on the 2005 electrical code. Damn it, Bill. You'll never get away with this. You know that electrical equipment that depends on the natural circulation of air and convection principles for cooling of exposed surfaces must be installed so that room airflow over the aforementioned surfaces is not prevented by walls or adjacent installed equipment. Do I, Frank? Do I? And finally in December, it's a holiday treat the whole family can enjoy. Our adaptation of Lynn Galen's ever-popular, a sugar-free and gluten-free holiday for all. (laughs) This is the worst Christmas ever! Yeah, it definitely is. That's next fall at Book It Theater. And coming in the spring, Book It's... Anxiously awaited adaptations of the 2001 Toyota Echo Owner's Manual, the 2007 Kaiser Permanente Testicular Cancer Awareness Brochure, and the lunch menu from Hop Chong Szechuan Deli. Book it, we're running out of literature. You're listening to 
to Live Wire Radio, and perhaps you're in your car or your living room, but did you know that you could listen to Live Wire anywhere, anytime? Going on a last-minute trip to Myanmar? No problem. Our podcast is portable and multilingual, meaning we can be listened to in English by anyone of any language. <laughs> For more information or to download our podcast, please visit livewireradio.org. Next up on the show, we have a stand-up comedian who has appeared on Jimmy Fallon and Chelsea Lately and Showtime's Shameless, where he played a deaf, crack-addicted male prostitute on his deathbed. His 2009 album, Everyone You Know Is Going to Die and Then You Are, was one of the top 20 comedy albums on iTunes, and he was named their best new comedy artist that year as well. He's also a published playwright and now an author with the publication of his book, Casher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Please welcome Moshe Casher to Livewire. Hi, everyone. How are you? I figured I'd start at the beginning. I'll I'll tell you some of the earliest memories of my life. I come from kind of a strange household. I was raised in a deaf household. Uh, Both my parents are really into Um, (laughs) hip-hop. Strange having deaf parents. You know, my mom growing up would need to call me on the telephone, but she couldn't use a regular phone, so what she would have to do is type a message on a computer. The message would then go to an operator. The operator would then call me, and that's whose voice I would hear on the telephone which made for some awkward conversations. Ring, hello. Hello, my son. God? No, no, it's your mama calling. How are you, my beautiful boy? Mom, are you a black dude? And she was, my mom was a black dude, which was difficult for me, difficult for my father too, who was very upset when he found out it was a great bait and switch, which was why I think perhaps they divorced when I was very young and my mother moved me to Oakland. My father stayed in Brooklyn and by the time my father won visitation rights, I flew back to Brooklyn to find that in my absence, my father had joined up with a group of Hasidic Jews known as the Satmar Hasidim, who are the most weird of all the Hasidic groups. Let me say that again so that you'll understand me. Of all the Amish bearded gown and fur hat wearing people from the past, My father joined up with the group that was the most outside the margins of society. This would be like being among the fattest of all Walmart shoppers. It's a very intense level. And I would go back into the old country. My father would pick me up at the airport, drive me to the Hasidic Jewish barbershop, which is much different than the black barbershop, I promise you. And he would push me in front of a man who would say, where are your payas? The payas, of course, are the dangly sidelocks that Hasidic Jews enjoy. I guess God is very into that. I don't know exactly why. God's like, I don't get it myself. I created the whole universe, but I just love a little curl. I can't get over it. Bye, 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 bye. So then my father would put a yarmulke on me and a dress shirt, and I would sort of shuck and jive, be like, Mammy! Hope that nobody noticed I didn't know what I was doing in the old country. Here's how you get to Seagate. If you take the F train to the last possible stop in Brooklyn, you get off, walk past Coney Island, past the projects, past the people of color, through a gate, through a time portal to pre-Nazi Europe... You will then arrive in Seagate, where people are still using horse-drawn buggy and spitting at redheads because they're bad luck. It's an intense place to be. 
years went by and it was about to be my bar mitzvah and you know how Jews have fun themes to their bar mitzvahs you know like uh, the Yankees or Indiana Jones and a Harrison Ford lookalike will pop out of a cake and whip a pinata with a whip and a waterfall of golden chocolate coins will spill out by the way am I the only person that's disturbed by the idea of the golden chocolate coin as the go-to celebratory snack of the Jewish people are we not concerned with our reputation as Shylocks and money grubbers at all What are the Gentiles supposed to think when they see us training our children to actually eat money? I like it so much, Daddy. Anyway, the theme to my bar mitzvah was the Holocaust. It was a dreary affair. I walked in. I knew no one at my own bar mitzvah. It was just people from Seagate and the set of Yentl who'd been hired to come play the part of my friends and family, and I knew no one, but I did know that they all were giving me checks at the bar mitzvah, which was very exciting. I was just stuffing money in my pocket, and at the end of my bar mitzvah, I had $1,500, which was more money than I'd ever seen in my life, and I was so excited. I should also tell you, though, that I was a 13-year-old boy, and I'd recently learned how to do the things that 13-year-old boys do. All right, masturbate this is what I'm talking about. Do you remember when you first learned to masturbate, when you were just like, oh, okay, goodbye, everybody. I'll see you in a couple of years. And at first, I didn't even know there was an end game. You know what I mean? I would just do it for a while, pack it back in, be like, that'll do, pig, and get on with my day. And then the fateful day came. So here's what I started to do. I started calling phone sex lines when my Hasidic, deaf Jewish family would go to sleep. I would sneak down, this literally, I would sneak like a little creature downstairs and call these phone sex lines. And I would call these third world nations. You remember they had the 900 numbers and then every number got blocked. And then they started this long distance arrangement with these third world countries where you could call. There would be a $20 connection fee and you could, you know, call up. And you can't use your real voice. You can't be like, hi, it's almost my bar mitzvah. You have to be like, hi, it's me, Jim, and this is totally normal. So here's the best call I ever made. I called, I think, a place in the Philippines. She picked up. She was like, "Allo." I don't do voices, so it'll sound like a Russian man, but it was a Filipino woman. She's like, "Allo," And I was like, hi, it's me, Jim, ready for this action. Let's do this. And she's like, oh, no, sorry. I don't do that kind of call. Now, the only response at this point is to immediately hang up the phone, maybe call a different number, maybe give up entirely. No, I decided to push the issue for some reason. I was like, what do you mean you don't do this kind of call? Come on. And she's like, no, no, I don't do it. And I was like, come on, please. And she was like, oh, all right. And we did it. What happened in that moment? Well, I still think about that. Did, what was that? Did I pull a woman out of retirement for one last moan? Or even more compelling, did I call a random wrong number in the Philippines and some blessed saint of a woman was like, he seemed like he's got some problems right now. Go ahead, you can do it. Then the phone bill came and it was $1,500. I spent every cent of my bar mitzvah money directly on my penis. And that's how I became a man. Thanks, guys. Moshe Kasser. Welcome to the show, Moshe. Thanks for having me. What a pleasure. The book is hilarious and dark, and uh, it's really fantastic. I wanted to say genius. Thank I you. did want to say genius. I'm glad you said it for me. Um, 
but I did want to talk about this culture clash, and you, and you talked about it a little bit. So you talked about sort of what, what life was like at your dad's, but you were going from Oakland with your hippie mom to this situation with your Hasidic father, and you would, sp- you would spend summers with your dad. So what was that like for you? What was that transition like for you? Oh, it was literally like going back in time. I mean, it's a straight... I don't know if you know Oakland, everybody, but I don't read particularly Oakland. I don't know if you can see the look, but I, I, would, uh, I would essentially fly back in time, and I would go into the old country, and I would try to be invisible. I would try to make sure that nobody noticed that... I, I mean, I have family that are third-generation American who still speak with Eastern European accents. I am not exaggerating. I could be like, they're like New Yorkers, and I could be like, yay, go Yankees. And they'd be like, what is the Yankees? They don't. (laughs) That's the level we're operating at. But if I was like, what's Tractate 15 in the Talmud? They'd be like, whatever thing. I don't speak Yiddish still. Yeah. Well, but it also must have been hard going back the other way after you'd been trying to assimilate into that, in, into the Hasidic culture. Well, yeah. Because, you, yeah, I mean, you were, you were fairly different in some of the, in, in, in your situation in Oakland as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you, here's the ultimate example of how bifurcated my existence was. What, what, if you had asked me when I was a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, I want to be either a baseball player or a famous rabbi. Uh, I didn't want to be either of those things. They just filled in some deficit that I imagined I had, you know, uh, you know, baseball for my manhood, Torah for my soul, and in reality, I didn't have much of either. And so that middle place yeah. is where I jumped into and found a lot of trouble. You did find a lot of trouble, and um, you, you got in a lot of trouble. But the thing was that, mo- that both of your parents were deaf, and so you would go into a parent-teacher conference, and you were the actual uh, person who was uh, translating this for your mother. So how did that work? Yeah, that's right. I mean, in some sort of inane logic flaw, I would be uh, assigned to be the interpreter for the disciplinary meeting that I was also the subject of. And so you become really adept at kind of massaging the message. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to... You can't just be like, we think this kid's great. He's a genius. He might write a book someday called Cashier in the Rye. Because then they'll notice that there's something wrong in the air. My mom would have said, they're not smiling when they say that. So I would sort of nuance it, you know? They would say, like, he's a terrible kid and we think he's awful. And I would say, he's a very interesting child and thinks in a way that is different from his peers or things like that. Until my mom would walk out of these parent-teacher conferences talking about how very paranoid and weird the people at Oakland Public Schools were. <laughs> right. Well, and you found yourself in, you know, in schools uh, try, where they tried to discipline you. You found yourself in rehab. And it was interesting in the book to see that you, uh, you, you seem to derive so much pleasure from aggravating adults to the point that they would lose control with you. And, and it's interesting because when you do your stand-up, you seem to sort of like to figure out where that line is and maybe step over it a little bit. Do you feel like that some of that comes from back when you were a kid? That's a really interesting question. I, I agree. You know, I, my, my sweet spot is right in the, ed, is the zone where the audience can't decide if they love me or hate me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's exactly where I, where, I, where I sort of thrive. And I think that I found a way to thrive in that zone. Uh, no, there, that wasn't the zone. I hated adults. I mean, I hated adults. So It's very unfortunate that if you hate adults and you don't die, you eventually become an adult, which is... <laughs> It's been an extremely disconcerting process as my chest hair turns gray. I'll show anybody that's interested after the show. Um, 
I took a great pleasure in, you know, being in a therapy session or a rehab session or a severely emotionally disturbed student school session. That was literally the designation of the schools that I went to, severely emotionally disturbed schools, which are even less pleasant than they sound. They were essentially elementary schools and high schools with padded cells in the back of the room. But I would take a great pleasure and I would find a chink in whatever the armor, whatever the the therapeutic armor of whatever clinician I was dealing with was and sort of stick my little fingers in there and rip it open. And the moment that I made a therapist scream at me, I thought, I won. I finally got my power back. (laughs) Well, and you did. You went through so much as a kid. And... Do you think that you would be as funny as you are right now if you hadn't have gone through all of that? I think that I learned how to be funny as a way of defending myself. I mean, Oakland Public Schools, if you're a white boy, which I am, you have a few different options of how to survive. You know, you can be invisible, uh, or you can be uh, bad, or you can be funny. And I chose to do a combination of bad and funny, uh, which is the name of my next book. Would you trade a happier childhood for not being funny now? Uh, uh, what's the point of trading? I guess, you, you know what I mean? You get the lot that you get, and you got to play, play the cards that you're dealt. And I, I wouldn't trade... I mean, look. Look at how funny I am. <laughs> I mean, how could I give that up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the book is uh, hilarious and fascinating. Uh, it is Casher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, a criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. The author is Moshe Casher. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. You're listening to LiveWire Radio, and if you're in the Portland area, come to our next live show on Friday, May 11th at the Alberta Rose Theater with guest Kelly Carlin, who will perform a piece of her one-woman show, A Carlin Home Companion, about growing up as the only child of famed comedian George Carlin. Other guests include New York Times best-selling author Philip Margolin and writer Matt Love, who will talk about his new book, Sometimes a Great Movie, Paul Newman, Ken Kesey, and the filming of the great Oregon novel. More details at LiveWire radio.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to LiveWire. All right, gang, it's time to play LiveWire's hit game show, Famous Racehorse or Child of Celebrity. 
That's right, we give you a name. You tell us if it's the name of some celebrity's kid or a very fast, well-known racehorse. Let's bring on tonight's contestant. Give her a hand. All right, let the folks know what your name is. Liz Johnson. And where are you from, Liz Johnson? Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, wow. Phoenix, sure. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you like the ponies? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Trisha, what can she win if she uh, wins Famous Racehorse or Celebrity Kid? How about the uh, current issue of Vogue magazine and a pack of Mentos? Sounds amazing. Well, if you're ready and the audience is ready, let's play Famous Racehorse or Child of Celebrity. Number one, Moxie Crime Fighter. Celebrity. Yes. That is the daughter of magician Pendulette. Celebrities can be that cruel. Number two, audio science. Racehorse. Unfortunately, that is the son of actress Shannon Sossamon. Someone lost a bet. Number three, native dancer. Horse. Audience helped on that one, of course. That's the 1953 Preakness winner. Number four, bear blue. This is not Price is Right. One dollar! What's the name again? Bear Blue. Celebrity. That is Alicia Silverstone's unfortunate son. Number five, Silver Charm. I'd say that's a horse. That is the Preakness winner of 97, but everyone knew that. Number six, Pilot Inspector. What was that? Pilot Inspector. Celebrity. The son of My Name of Earl star Jason Lee and Leverage's Beth Risegraff. Good luck in junior high school, kid. Number seven, Dusty Rain. Celebrity. Correct. That is the daughter of Vanilla Ice. That's a double whammy. Number eight, Kahe Keeley. Kahe Keeley? Kahe Keeley. Ah, uh, Horse. That is the son of lost actress Evangeline Lilly. Even she can't spell it. <laughs> Number nine, Majestic Prince. Horse. That was a gimme. That's the 69 Kentucky Derby winner. Number 10, Seven Serious. You guys suck. <laughs> Turn against her. <laughs> It is the, we'll give you half a point. It is the son of Erica Badu and Andre 3000. Number 11, Sarazen. Sarazen. Celebrity. It is the horse of the year in 1924 and 25, duh. Number 12, Busher. Pusher? Busher. Busher. Busher? That's got to be celebrity. That's a horse. Oh. It's a filly. And she was sired by War Admiral, but you knew that. Number 13, Indiana August. Horse. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm going to go... Horse. That's the dumb kid of actor Casey Affleck. 
Number 14, Racer Maximiliano. Horse. That is the son of director Robert Rodriguez. Surprisingly slow for a child. Number 15, Man O' War. I'd say horse. Correct, but if Nicolas Cage has another kid, who knows? Trisha, how many did she get right? Eight. Eight out of 15, she just passed 50%. You did okay, we're gonna give you just the Mentos. Congratulations, Liz. Thank you, audience. Look out, Mentos are flying. Join us next time when we play Type of Sausage or Famous Nazi War Criminal. Good night. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, the Shook Twins.
the Shook Twins. And now, as promised, to sum it all up for us, with a poem he finished writing just about 30 seconds ago, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that sometimes I feel like I'm just off the side of the life I'm supposed to be living, as if I'm a window washer on the side of my hundred-story life, and on the inside I'm casually eating a carrot, wearing an expensive sweatsuit, wielding the resources of the nation like a saber, with people who competed to work for me are listening to every word I say about owning prize-winning racehorses. On the outside of the window, I'm choking on a carrot, because the non-cool me doesn't know how to eat a carrot in real life, because I usually eat meat canoes and not carrots, but I thought I might try to make a healthy decision for once in my damn life. And every once in a while, the inside of the building me will look out while trying to make an important decision at myself, dancing on the window, washing scaffolding, choking on a carrot, shaking the side of the building. That's when I break out my banjo, because on the inside of the building, that's how I roll. I have every talent I've ever wanted to have. And when I turn around and see myself playing a banjo while I'm choking on the scaffolding, spitting orange carrot everywhere, I think... That's so damn cruel, mocking my death with your talent. So I decide to flip myself off, and while looking at myself flipping me off, the cool and talented me with the life I should have led decides to stage a play based on the event, because lucky creative opportunities are always happening to the cool me like a rosy bride full of promise. So the cool me takes a testicular cancer pamphlet and begins casually writing phrases between the phrases about testicular cancer while I'm choking to death making $8 an hour. <laughs> cool me writes, a man dances upon the scaffolding like pain in various regions about the groin, spitting out orange vegetative confetti that may indicate a life-threatening cancerous condition. His face turns blue like, in the later stages, severe discoloring can occur. Yet strangely, I'm jealous. This man has a funny near-death quality that I simply can't buy. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. To our guests tonight, Jane Jones and Kevin McEwen, Moshe Kasher and the Shook Twins. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and David Jorgensen. Now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville with Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The 
Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, and Master of Sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer B-Frame Masters. Faces for Radio Theater was directed tonight by Phil Incorvaya. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.